Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. You know, I love it when I start talking with you because it brings up so many emotions and thoughts and different ways we can take this conversation. But as I was walking in, uh, I often figure out what am I going to talk about first with Dr. Matt? And I was thinking to myself and I was like, you know, in the past month and a half, I've had some really good days and I've had some really bad days. And those are the days that I seem to focus on, the really good days and the really bad days. But what I forget about is I had majority of okay days. And those, you know what I mean, where nothing exciting happened and nothing terrible happened. And, you know, they were just okay. And if you're an adult doing what you should... Most of your days are okay. Yeah, but we get <laughs> you know what so I mean? fixated and yeah. focused on either the really good right. or the really bad, and sometimes we forget that okay is just good enough. And 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 not only that, okay is great. Yeah, actually, okay really is a sign. Like if somebody says, "What'd you do over the weekend?" And you're like, "Oh, not much. You know, I just ran some errands." It was your, yeah, I had an okay weekend. That's great. Yeah. That, that, that means you're doing all the right stuff in life. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I, you know, and that's, and that's what I was, you know, and, but that's also what we focus on social media. And so you said junk food or fine dining. Yeah. The only pictures that we put on Instagram is either look at what I'm about to eat. This is junk, but it's going to be so good. Mm-hmm. Or look how lucky I am to go to this fine dining re- yeah, establishment. Yeah. There's, there's no days in there where it's like, I had some chili and some cornbread. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Which I had last night. Yeah. But I didn't take a picture of it. I had a can of soup. <laughs> yeah. And it was okay. Yeah, it was fine. <laughs> yeah. It did its job. Yeah. But I, I, I think sometimes, and I think that goes back to what, you know, the big buzzword in recovery right now is being authentic. Mm. And then and, and, and just letting people know that life's not, it is full of ups and downs. But there's also a lot of middle ground in there that's going to take up majority of the, the, the time. Well, a lot of people that have come on the show that have struggled with addiction and are now in recovery, I think are a little bit like your personality where it's like go big or go home, kind of thrill seeking, high energy, go, go, go folks. Adrenaline junkies. Yeah. And those those folks, uh, I think, have to learn throughout adulthood to appreciate the average times. Mm -hmm. And I think the average times can feel very uh, irritating to them. and, And in the past, maybe they turn to a substance to sort of jazz things up but of course we know how that turns out i watched prince harry and Meghan markle documentary last night with my girlfriend 
Wow. And it was okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I'm glad it was okay because that okay. sounds terrible. You know, she was into it and I was like, what do you think? She was fascinating. And I go, okay. Yeah, it's all right. Yeah. yeah. All right. <laughs> hey, something new we've been doing on the podcast lately. It's called uh, Matt's Mental Health Minute. Is that what we're calling it? Well, I don't know. That's fine. Yes. your show. We can call it whatever you want. It's our show. <laughs> Without you, this wouldn't be possible. I don't know about that. Well, when I pitched the show, they said, get a doctor or you can't do it. Yeah, luckily, so, you knew one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So we're doing a mental health minute. Yeah. Yep. How, and uh, man, it's for fun. But uh, there's a lot of cool things. I, as Okay. Prior to doing this show, mm-hmm. of course, I had patients that struggled with abuse and addiction. And if their addictions were severe and primary, I'd refer them on to other people that specialize in that. It, it wasn't a major focus on my practice. But over the last four years, Mm -hmm. it's become not just a focus, not really of my practice, but of my interest. And so I do a lot of extra reading up on things in mental health and substance abuse. And I I got to know a lot more of the clinicians and people in that world that do that primarily every day. And it's just kind of fascinating. I realize there's tons of interesting stuff I read that I don't share on the show. So that's our mental health minute. We're going to give like some news clips or a research article. So I thought, so we have a a wonderful guest today. Her name is Holly Jones. She comes to us from Tooele. She said she grew up in a small town. And so you tease us a little bit yeah. with your topics, and you're going to let us choose. Yeah. So I think it's kind of fun to let you guys choose. Are I have you a in few home? options. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So there's a there's a recent, just this last, last week, I think, the DEA has updated something about prescribing Suboxone. Okay. That's in our world of recovery. And for those who don't know, Suboxone is used to help people get off of heroin and opioids. And it, it's kind it of It is a, an opioid itself. And guess what I learned about it? What? It's actually two medications. I didn't know that. Mixed together. And uh, it's buprenorphine and naloxone. Yeah, uh-huh. I can't yes. even say yeah. it. Right. Yeah. Thank you, Holly. Yeah. But from what my understanding is, I, I've never and taken it's it. Tre- it's, a, it's prescribed to help people get off of their addiction. To or it's a people. maintenance drug. And or it what, can be a maintenance and drug. And so what they do is they take that. Harm reduction. Harm reduction. They don't get a euphoric feeling from it, right. but they also don't go in withdrawals. Am I right? No. Dang it. <laughs> <laughs> they can get a euphoric feeling. Oh, they, they, they can. can. It yes. can be abused. There's a max, though. Yeah. Because your receptor is just so large, once it fills, it actually can't get you higher than a certain dose. And usually that's about 16, mm-hmm. 60 milligrams. So, so oh, it, 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 it's, a controlled, it's a controlled substance. Yeah. And in the past, not everyone's been able to prescribe. That's one. We could talk about that. I, I have a psychiatric manifesto. You have to do this <laughs> when you have a manifesto. Okay. Dr. Nasrallah, Henry what? Nasrallah, has written a manifesto about stigma should be considered a hate speech and a hate crime stigma towards anything in mental health, including substance abuse. We could talk about that. Okay. Okay. Uh, eh, we don't need to talk about this one. They don't really know why, but coffee seems to help with fatty livers. We'll okay. Get, we'll, if they figure that out, we'll come All back right. to that one. Forget that. <laughs> uh, and then we can go back to an oldie but a goodie that wasn't chosen last week or the week before and screening uh, patients for cannabis use before surgery. There's nah, some pass. good reasons why. Past TikTok wanna, already hates you. I don't know. It could be that uh, <laughs> it gives you worse pain and no, nausea. Pass, pass. Yeah, it could be that it increases risk of heart attack during surgery. What about the two I you don't teased know. us with? All right, let's talk about those. <laughs> All right, Holly, is that okay with you? Absolutely. Let's start with yeah. the DEA because we already kind of covered that. 
But in the past, only certain prescribers, in an effort to kind of, we know through the the opioid epidemic, mm-hmm. all there no anybody who could prescribe could prescribe an opioid in the beginning. And now yeah. the laws have changed. You have to be a certain type of doctor and have a certain type of clearance to prescribe those medications, right? And usually all the other doctors talk, so there's not doctor shopping around. Exactly. And, yeah, and now we have digital ways of tracking which patients are taking what. But that includes Suboxone because it can be abused and uh, and in the past limited prescription privileges to certain physicians. But the DEA just opened it up to a much larger group of physicians, including psychiatrists. We spoke about this in a clinic meeting the other day with, um, with my colleagues who are, who are prescribing psychiatrists. And the main reason for doing this, to, to let more physicians prescribe Suboxone, is the rural communities. Oh. What they're finding is that the people in rural communities where – uh, we definitely know through this show, and, and Holly's going to talk about what it's like in rural communities, uh, a lot of drug abuse happens there as well. But the, the options for treatment, residential centers and other treatment options are just not available there. And so the argument was we should have more of these you know, family practice docs and other folks who are in rural areas that are doing the majority of prescribing be able to prescribe those as well. But there's a counter argument. I would agree with that with a caveat of saying that that they need to do some special training to be able to administer that kind of. And they're not exactly clear. I think they're just opening it up to people that have a certain prescription privilege level already. Yeah, I would think they're like, hey, look, if you want to do this and offer this for your small town community, there's probably some additional training that you should undergo to be able to do that. that. The problem is, let's be honest, most of the people prescribing in rural communities are not physicians. What They're do you think? PAs and, and nurse practitioners. Mm. Holly, do you feel like uh, in the town Tooele you live in, uh, there's enough resources? There's not. No, I grew up in a couple different communities. Uh, Sanpete County, also very rural, and then Tooele County, also very rural. Neither of those have anything for mental health, right? I mean, they'd have like Tooele County mental very health. Little, yeah, yeah, very little. Yeah, very little. But uh, that plays huge because – they're able to get on a substance instead of actually dealing with the mental health. Yeah, that's a good point. But the argument, the counter argument is instead of focusing on more Suboxone, maybe we should take resources and build more treatment centers in rural well, communities, really which I would into also. When we find out more about Holly's story, but I don't know why you couldn't do both. I Both is better. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Okay. Have your cake and eat it too. I would agree with that. Um, and then just, this is sort of fun. Uh, the, I'm curious, I brought this up mostly to hear what you, it's not research, it's just a manifesto written by this Henry Nasrallah okay. MD. And he's, he's talking about that uh, people who are suffering from the stigma of mental health, which includes being an addict, um, in the general population, one in 52 individuals with schizophrenia uh, commit suicide compared to 12 in 100,000 people in the general population. Wow. So that's an over 200% increase mm. in suicide rates. So we would say that people that are affected by that not only are, are at higher risk for, for suicide, but we know for sure people um, are uh, uh, discriminated against for getting jobs. Oh, yeah. And in fact, you may not know this, but a lot of physicians, nurses, lawyers, teachers, and other highly educated people uh, have admitted in in a study that they will not disclose any mental health history of their own because they're worried about being discriminated at in even in a place like a university healthcare system where you're a physician and you should be able to have the most care the stigma still uh, or the most understanding the stigma still exists 
And um, he says it, it deprives patients of the pursuit of happiness. And he want his solution, and this is what I, I think is curious, because the rest of that's just interesting, but I think we're all on board that, that it is, there is discrimination. Yeah, 100%. Uh, he wants to permanently eliminate this by having more effective laws and make it an actual hate crime and prosecute people just like we do with other hate crimes. What do you think? I mean, I think that's a stretch. I, I know what he's saying, and it's hard to tell somebody who lost a loved one because of circumstances like that. Right. That, 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 how could you fight against that? But I think what we need to do is just have more of an education and let people know. And I think uh, stories like mine where, you know, uh, you can come out and you can live a fruitful life and you can get your life back and you right. can live a normal life. Uh, are, it, it is out there and it's available, yeah. uh, you know, and highlighting more of those and letting people know. But it's once again, I think it's a conversation and education yeah, and advertisement. What do you think, Holly? I am really strong on this right now. I'm going through every bit of that because of the type of organizations that I'm trying to start in these rural communities. I'm getting a lot of backlash and a lot of judgment. Um, I'm getting defamed online. You know, um, somebody is going to open up a home with group living next to me and they're all going to be addicts. Everybody lock your doors. Don't ever let your we children walk to school. We had our guests in Morgan County running yeah. up against yes. the city council, right? With That's that what issue. I'm doing yeah. at the same time. So, yeah. you know, it really took a conversation with uh, planning and zoning, the city council members, to just go with an open heart and let and them you know find there that are they answers. Have a lot of light of misconceptions about 100%. what's coming into their community. Yes. Well, yeah. here's, here's the thing about that. They say my community's safe. We don't want that here, but they don't know that they already have addicts. Yeah. Oh, they absolutely know. Carlin, they just don't want to see it. Yeah, they don't want to see yes. it. Yeah. George yes. Carlin, the famed comedian, had this whole bit, and it was called NIMBY. And NIMBY was an acronym for not in my backyard. Mm. He says, you get a group mm-hmm. of people together and say, you know what we need? We need more prisons. And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, we need more prisons. And then you pick a spot and everyone's like, not in my backyard. Yeah. We do need more <laughs> prisons, but not in my backyard. You know yeah. what we need is we need help, mental health for everybody out there that's suffering. And you get a group of people together like, yes, of course. Why wouldn't we not? We're human. Yes, let's do this. This is the right thing to do. Well, we picked a place. No, not there. Not in my backyard. <laughs> right. yeah. and, and that's right. what it is. And so many times that you do that. Wait until you have a loved one who needs help. Mm-hmm. Yeah, then your your mind changes pretty quick. Yeah. You know, and 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 so I think you you need to be open hearted, right? And you need to think about that because chances are, if you are an addict, not an addict, someone you know is. Yeah, absolutely. And if they haven't came to the realization that even they are an addict, yeah, they they don't even know what. And we should have resources available. So I can't wait to talk with Holly today. She's got an amazing story to tell. Before we go to break, Holly, what are you addicted to? (laughs) What am I addicted to? Work. Work. (laughs) But you don't have an addiction to a substance. I don't. So we're going to find out why she's here. You're listening to Project Recovery right here on KSL. A stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist, and our guest today is Holly Jones. And as she said earlier, she's not addicted to a substance, but you are addicted to work. Mm-hmm. Do you I think do- everybody has their own addiction. They just haven't looked close enough at it. You answered the question before I even asked. I think most people, if you look close into yourself, you are addicted to something. We have. We are definitely dependent, at least, on a lot of behaviors and uh, and substances that we don't consider substances like sugar, you know, white bread, cell phone, <laughs> cell phone, and TV. And, yeah, everybody has some gym. sort of addiction dependency yes. issue going on for sure. But you wanted to be on the podcast because um, you grew up a, with a family of addicts. I did. Yeah. And and tell me a little bit about that. You know, it's just, it's really a strange environment because you're the only one living this life, not understanding what your, your siblings and your parents are going through, right? You're seeing the enabling. I was the youngest of four children. We grew up in a very, uh, I call it my Christopher Robin years because it was just a perfect environment for growing up as a child. Beautiful. So to watch them go through normal traumas in life and then harder traumas and not know and have a coping mechanism to do so. So let's stop it's right really there. hard. Let's stop right there. So normal traumas, just you mean like mm. break up with girlfriend? Yeah, just or... normal stuff, lose a job, right? Yeah. Uh, get bad grades, all that kind of stuff. But then you actually have big traumas that happen in a family. And we've, we, we've had a lot. So um, did your parents party or was it just mm. your siblings? Yeah. Uh, my parents were hippies, full-on hippies. They went through... You know, the 70s and 80s, they lived up in Park City. They decided they wanted to move down to a, a rural environment to raise their family. Make their and own pants. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so they did. They uh, they moved down to Spring City. Beautiful I environment. I don't even know that is. Yeah. I've lived in Utah I've, my whole in life. It's in Stampede County. It's, an art, it's, it's really artsy. My dad was an artist. Spring um, City, huh? Wow. Yeah. Okay. So they moved down there. Uh, they switched their lives around, you know. They uh, went to the LDS religion. They got married in the temple. They they put all of these things in that they That's thought they were missing. That's very hippie-like, though. That's at sort of mo- conservative, right? Yes, it was. But at the movement, it was kind of— Is that their rebellion? <laughs> no, it was kind of like, oh, look at this new evolution, right? We're oh, okay. evolving, right. evolving. And mm-hmm. we're evolving as this family, and we are supposed to look a specific way. So we mm-hmm. looked a specific way, mm-hmm. but then it all started falling apart because— they didn't actually deal with what was going on in our family to look the specific way. Oh, okay. So prior to that, living up in Park City, mm-hmm. they embraced more of the traditional hippie lifestyle. Yes. So what does that mean when it comes to substance use? In Lots your of family? substance use. Just across yeah. the board, everything? Uh, Alcohol, most, mostly, mostly it was marijuana, shrooms, um, uh, a lot of drinking. And involved socially. They never at that point, though, they didn't dip one way or the other. They would do it as fun. Uh, that's what they did for their social events. Recreational. And, yes. Yeah. And then they, they worked. They they were able to have their lives. But the thing about recreational is when you hit those trauma points, it's an easy button. <laughs> it's a, hey, you it's know what? I know what's going to make me feel yeah. better. And this is what I'm going to go to. So no. then when they moved down to Spring City... You said your dad was an artist. Did he did he maintain that part of sort of the 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 hippie lifestyle of being an artist, or did he, he give did. that up as well? Yeah, they bought this awesome house down there. They are very um, they they go back to the roots of their community. So these homes were built in the 1800s, and so everybody tries to keep them very authentic. Okay. So they were fixing up this really old house. 
Um, all of our friends would come down from Salt Lake because we were living in this amazing area with all this property. So they would come down and put up tents in the backyard and we'd ride horses and we had a farm. And I was so going to ask you, probably yeah, off the land, right? Like yeah, they bring down their, 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 their family to show them, you know, this incredible other way to live other than in the city. So what do you think was attractive to them about joining a formal religion and, and mm. being active in a church? What, what was a, what, what was the draw there? My mom had always been active um, with her family. She went wayward when she was about 16, but uh, they were looking for something, I think, to hold them together. They had had some – Yeah, they'd had some issues after they had their first two kids and that's when they decided, you know what? We need to get out of this party Mm -hmm. phase. We need to get out of the world of at that time, the 70s, um, and and just recenter ourselves. So my dad uh, went down and he was uh, doing some professor work at Snow College and he started running their graphic arts department because that was all coming into play at that time. So it was a, a creative outlet for him and then also the security that they both needed at that time okay. for their family. Well, that makes yeah. sense. Now you yeah. say you're the only one in your family that doesn't have a substance abuse problem. Do you remember when your other siblings started taking mm. uh, alcohol or drugs? Absolutely. And, and do you remember and, – and I guess more curious, why did you say no? You know, I often said it was hard being the baby of the family, but I got given such a gift in this life because I was able to see each one of them and all of the misfortunes that they had, the good things too, but also when they started using and how it affected that life. So they gave you a blueprint basically. They did. They absolutely did. You know what we call that? What? Vicarious learning. Mm -hmm. Oh. And that is a really valuable type of learning. It means learning by observing. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people struggle – with really learning by observing. They they often have to learn through their own specific, you know, successes or mistakes. So let me stop you there. So I had to touch the pot on the stove to tell it was hot. Yeah, <laughs> low on vicarious I learning. watched you and said, oh, <laughs> Yeah, there you go. So that's, that's interesting. It also tells me just a little bit about your own cognitive makeup and what you tune into and uh, the fact that you're an internal processor and you're, you see a lot of things and observe and try to make sense of things in your environment. And so you're right. As the youngest, that is a gift because if that's your cognitive setup, then you have the ability to avoid uh, a lot of problems because you can see what other people do incorrectly and avoid doing that. Right. Yeah. Well, and it also gives you an area in which you see, oh, they don't have any coping mechanisms. So how do I work on what I'm what we're missing in our family, right? And I I searched a lot of different places and I have so many family members now that are friends that I consider family because I had to search out for those relationships. I didn't have those within my home. So to search out for those other mentors in life was key for me because I had to have that person say, "Yeah, that is a coping mechanism. Yes, that's a good thing." So yeah. do you remember an instance or one of the first ones that where somebody offered you some alcohol or some drugs and you went no, I'm okay. And it was a pressure because I, I feel mm-hmm. like there's been a lot of people on this podcast who have been in a social setting who were a little insecure, maybe anxiety ridden and, and, and wasn't sure and, and, and didn't have the ability or the coping mechanisms to say no. And, and it was yeah. like, I guess, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. I mean, th- th- they did say yes, you know what I mean? But I, I wonder what it's like, you know, for someone to be like, no, I'm cool. Yeah. And especially at a young, young age. Yeah. I mean, I I was always the caretaker. I always felt – and this this comes down to the structure of my family as well because my mom was an enabler. So she was such a strong woman, right? She could hold everybody's 
everybody's anger, everybody's hate, everybody's love, everybody's turmoil. So when you watch a woman like that, you you believe, oh, I need to step into this woman that I need to hold everything. And that's also not healthy. So for me growing up, it was, okay, I'm a little bit wiser than my years, um, but also I can hold you. If you're going to drink, somebody has to drive us home. So I'm that person. I'm going to be the one that's going to be the DD and make sure that we all get home safe. Um, I mean, I, I did try um, drugs and alcohol when I was younger. I just never had that switch that was like, oh, I, need I more like of this. this. Right. It was always, oh, I can have – I still can have a glass of wine if I want or a drink. But it's not, oh, I need this on a daily basis. It's, oh, I can have a drink every couple weeks. So in the early years of substance abuse with your – I guess your parents and your, your siblings mm-hmm. and living in a small community like that uh, was – I'm, I'm assuming there's not resources. Were there conversations about one another going, hey, maybe these guys are going too far on this or maybe we need to reel it back mm-hmm. here? Or is it just kind of let's see what happens? The rural environment is so hard when it comes to addiction and mental health because there is such a stigma. I mean, people wouldn't let their kids down the street play with me because my dad drank a Bud Light. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the stigma is it's magnified. Well, everybody's into everybody's business. Yes. And so being, that is their being, business. being yes. from a small town. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, and it's really cute to this very day when I talk to my mom and she still lives in, in Morgan where I grew up, uh, she and my dad. And, and it's cute because she'll give me updates on everybody and what they're doing. And it's not gossip, but it's gossipy, you know, like <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, but that's, that's in, in a small town. Everybody knows everybody. I remember being a bagger at the grocery store, the one and only grocery store in town. And if if the football game went well the night before, you got pats on the back from all the old timers and they came through and they knew your name and number. And if you didn't do well, they sat and bent your ear about what you should have done differently. Like everybody knows like what you're doing everywhere yeah. you're at. And they're like, you missed that one tackle. And I'm like, well, come on, like 15, man, leave me alone, you know? Yeah. But that's that, you're absolutely right. And so when it comes to things like, like mental health, substance abuse, um, any sort of non, you know, preferred behavior, yeah. it gets whispered around, and and then there's a lot of that, like, oh, you can't play with those kids, or don't go over to that yeah. house, and a lot of families will feel very alienated, and kids can grow up feeling feeling like there's something wrong with me just because my family's different, and that's mm-hmm. a, that's a really hard stigma to manage. I grew up in Ogden, um, and. Uh, my parents got divorced, and we lived with my mom, and she'd, she'd had parties at the house. Mm-hmm. And I heard it more than once from neighbors that our house was called the House of Sin. <laughs> oh, I'm not gosh, That is so harsh. Uh, I, I, remember, and, and, and is. I remember asking this kid, I was like, can you come over to my house? He goes, no. I go, why? He goes, it's the House of Sin. I was like, what? He wow. goes, that's what people are calling your house because your mom works at night. And, you know. So you're unsupervised. Unsupervised. And parties happen. My there. older brother yeah. drank and stuff, and it was the House of Sin. And I was like, oh. Well, how did that make you feel as a kid? Horrible. Yeah. Horrible. It is. Horrible. It's shameful. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't like it. And I remember one time I confronted a guy mm-hmm. and said, you know what? If I hear that out of your mouth again, I will kick the – and, you know. Yeah. Because it's Ogden. It was – It could have happened. I remember being in seventh grade going knocking on a grown man's door. Yeah. And saying, <laughs> come out here. And I go – because he said some stuff about my mom. Ooh. And I said, if I ever hear another word out of your mouth about my mom, the next time I knock on your door, you're going to have my fist <laughs> in your face. 
What I love and, about you, Casey, is you're like the funnest guy I know, but you're a little scary sometimes. No, and, I, and, and, and he was like, he goes, whoa, whoa. And I go, I think we're done. But I'm telling you now, yeah. try me. And I remember I went home and I told my mom, and she said, probably not the best message, but thank you. Yeah. You know what I mean? But yeah. it was it was, it was was a lot to carry for a, for a seventh that grader. That is heavy. Yeah. And, you know, and it, it does. I just wanted to be along, belong. Well, yeah, it creates a sense of shame, which yeah. is one of the most unhealthy uh, things a person can harbor at a young age, for Absolutely. sure. Well, you're listening to Project Recover. We got more with Holly Jones coming up in just a second. Thank you for stopping by. Welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. Our guest today is Holly Jones. And we were just talking about the stigma that surrounds addiction and mental health in a small town. And I just told you a story about knocking on a neighbor's door when they said some mean things about my mom in my house. Right. And I understand the stigma. And Holly, as you were saying, is that the stigma sometimes comes from an honest place. Uh, yeah. I mean, what they're doing is trying to protect their kids as sure. best they can. Yeah. yeah. I was mentioning that, uh, you know, I think I've done this too. Like, you get scared as a parent, and sometimes we parent out of fear, and that might cause parents to be judgmental. But all the more reason to be talking about this in, in a public forum to decrease the stigma and and to be supportive and inclusive. Well, yeah. here's a story for you. Right out of rehab, uh, I spent 45 days in an inpatient treatment center. Uh, and when I got out of rehab and came back to my house, I noticed a couple of things. First and foremost is my lawn was maintained. Mm-hmm. And I remember I called my brothers and I called my mom and I said, hey, did you guys mow my lawn? And they go, no. And I talked to the neighbors and nobody would tell me who mowed the lawn, but I know it was the neighborhood. Yeah. It was my neighbors coming together and mowing my lawn and maintaining my house while I was trying to get better. Which seems like a sort of a small chore, but I know how much that meant to you. Oh, and, it meant the world to me. Yeah. And it gave me hope. And the second thing that I was worried about is because I live in, in a wonderful community. My neighbors are great and, and they've been nothing but um, wonderful towards me and my family. But I thought right out of rehab and with the uh, publicity and the tension and the drinking and driving, I thought my house would be the house with the Scarlet A. That uh, kids were, once again, it would be the house of sin. Yeah. And I honestly thought that. I thought, oh, now my kids aren't going to be able to have sleepovers. Right. Nobody's going to want to let their kids come over to my house and play because I'm an addict. Uh, I'm not going to be in the text thread of, Who's picking up the kids tonight because everyone's worried? And, and, and rightfully so. I mean, I, I, I get some of those concerns. Back to those being a concerned parent. You know, you know what I mean? And, and, and I get yeah. those. And plus, yours was very public. Yeah. and yeah. But to my neighborhood, um, I want to say thank you because they never made me feel like an, an outcast. They always yeah. welcomed me and they always did what they could to, for me and my family. And yeah. so I know there's good people out there. And yeah. well, partly it's also your kids are awesome. They're, I'm, I'm very fortunate. Like I, I think <laughs> any parent would want your kids around. But I, but still, but but with with the stigma of their dad being an addict yeah. and being in rehab well, for 45 you around, days. It's the yeah. Kids, yeah. So <laughs> I so I know there is, but yeah. I understand it in a small town. So let's go back to your family. When did the addiction really start to take hold for your loved ones? When my two older siblings uh, got a little bit older and they started figuring out that life happens and they didn't have the coping mechanisms for that life. Uh, my father got uh, relieved of his uh, 
his employment at Snow College, and he didn't have the coping mechanisms that he needed. There was also some mental health there that never got dealt with. In, or diagnosed. No. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And people just they, – they thought, oh, no, she's just eccentric or, oh, no, he's he's just got some – a little bit of anger, right? No, these were full-blown mental health issues that needed to be diagnosed when they were a lot younger. Um, they still have not received the care that they need to because of the stigma attached to it. They think, oh, no, I'm not going to be that person. What is a that person? Somebody who is advocating for their own health? Mm-hmm. That's what we all should do, right? But, yeah, so we had some tr- some traumas happen in our family. And um, my dad actually had a surgery where he lost his entire stomach. So it's this man coming from – he's 6'1", 200 pounds. And within six months, he weighed 130 pounds. Wow. So oh, for him, God. it was losing his identity. Mm-hmm. And then also he had just been relieved from an 18-year job where he was wow. very you know, looked up to. Mm-hmm. He loved his job. And now he lost his identity. We also moved from Sampy County to the Tooele County area within that time frame. So I think he was just grasping at who am I? And why is this happening to me? Mm. Um, because we were also in another rural area, there weren't the type of resources that he really needed. So when he went down, uh, he went down hard. He started using on a daily basis. First, it was pain pills. Um, he was never much of a drinker. And then it turned into, wow, I don't have a stomach anymore. So this large intestine really sucks up that liquor. He could – he could uh, Mainline it. Oh, mainline. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So immediately he was a full-blown alcoholic. Wow. Um, and that lasted for about 20 years of my life until he really? unfortunately lost his life from addiction. Oh, oh I'm so sorry to hear that. That's um, – at what age were you when your father passed? Um, so it was actually only a couple years ago. Okay. Yeah. So um, he had some great, some great strides in recovery, and that's why I have such a love for those in recovery, because you find they find themselves right, and to watch another human do that, to watch another human come out of such a dark place, and you watch them through that dark place, mm-hmm. and then to see them have hope and then to fly again that's the best part i about consider life. that the real person coming back mm. right and so there's different theories on you know our mind and our psyche and our spirit and what all those things mean and one theory that i really like talks about the fact that we have kind of a real authentic um, perfect version of ourselves inside whether you whatever you want to call that And through various things in life, whether it's physical health problems, substance abuse, mental health, stress, trauma, that real self gets lost or um, covered up in different ways. But as we work through all of those things that cover up that real self, we can see and find that real self again. And I think you can see that in a no better place than in recovery centers. Absolutely. Where that real self comes back to the forefront Mm -hmm. and all the loved ones are kind of like, oh, there they are. There's my mom. There's my dad. I remember my second week in recovery. I'd been there for 14 days and been in detox seven days prior. So 21 days sober. And I remember on the 14th day or 15th day, I was at the pinnacle recovery and I come walking down the stairs and the clinical director goes, there you are. Mm -hmm. And I was like, are you messing with me? I was like, I've been (laughs) here for 14 days. 
You know, she goes, no, there you are. There's a light back in your eye. There's a color in your skin. And we're wondering when you are going to come out. And we were just waiting for that. And and that was seeing that real, authentic Casey. And I remember when I was working for the recovery center and I was tasked with getting new people into the house and helping them find recovery. I remember talking to this person and right before they went in, I go, I'm kind of envious of you. And I remember the addict looking at me like, you're envious of me. Everything I own is in a duffel bag right now. And I've been living on the streets for three days. And you're going to tell me you're envious of me? And I go, because the rebirth you're about to have is mm-hmm. amazing. Mm-hmm. It is such a beautiful journey. And, and so, so worth it. But I remember him just looking at me like, you are out of here. You might be on drugs because <laughs> yeah. there's no reason you should be envious of me. And I remember seeing that. And you're, you're 100% correct. Yeah, you get excited for them. You're, you're like, just oh. like, oh, yes. Because yes. they go, life is beautiful. Yes. And, and and I didn't think that I would ever have a life beautiful again. And now here they are. And, and it, it's like it's like watching your child walk for the first time or try ice mm-hmm. cream. And you can just see it in the eyes and they're like, something's amazing's going on there. There are yeah. so many reasons that I'm such an advocate for those in recovery. But that is exactly what you're speaking about right now. The authentic human that they are, their mm-hmm. essence, how they emit into all of the energy that we share. That is what our connection is. And to be able to connect with people on such an authentic level, mm-hmm. it's a beautiful thing. So I will I will always support those that are supporting themselves through the recovery. So you told us a little about your father and his 20-year battle mm-hmm. and to his passing. Um, but off air, you said it's been a couple of rough years for you. It has, yeah. You've lost- Four family members. Yeah. To addiction. Yeah, that's just the last couple of years. Yeah. All to addiction. Mm-hmm. And mental health. Uh, mental health had a large um, part of that, undiagnosed, but also the stigma behind it and why people don't reach out for help. And the reason is because we shame them, right? How can we expect those to step into their authentic human selves if we are shaming them for being authentic and and not just showering them with love? Um you know, I mean, you use the term mental, and it's got a negative connotation right from the get-go. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, anytime- yeah, we've talked about a lot of centers rename these days and swap out mental for behavioral. behavioral. Yes. And so we, we even do that at the University of Utah, Behavioral Health Clinic. The da- that's where I work, the Downtown Behavioral Health Clinic. And I understand that, and I don't mind changing names, but that should just tell you how prevalent and powerful the stigma is if multi-billion dollar hospital systems are- changing names that's how powerful the stigma is and so in the small town you're you're living in in twila i mean it's growing vastly it is um but they haven't kept up with the resources i mean i know they're probably doing the best that they can or maybe they're not i would like to think that most communities are doing the best they can you can't do the best you can though if you don't have the information and if you're not seeking that information about your community when somebody comes to you and says hey we have a huge uh rate of drug use you can't say, oh, well, that's what you think, and let's put it under the rug. That's We'll deal with that on a different day. Mm-hmm. You have to face it and say, you're right. We do. What can we do? So recently you were in a in a meeting, a town meeting. Where many. You, yeah, many. <laughs> yes. So you were telling – just talk about that a little bit, like what yeah. it's like when you're trying to talk about the data, trying to talk about the facts, trying to share the knowledge, mm-hmm. and, and what is it like trying to get that through in a small town? It is very straining, I will tell you. There's been so many times when I felt so defeated walking out of those rooms. 
because I have a lot of knowledge on the subject and I can't, you know, I, I can't judge them because they have not had the experience of addiction. I can't. That's where they're at in their life, right? Sure. And, and I'm glad that they haven't had to go through it. But to be able to show up to a meeting and have people stand up, literally stand in the room, 30 of your neighbors stand in the room and say, you will not put this next door to my house because it has somebody with mental health and it has somebody who's on drugs. They actually are not on drugs. They're in recovery. Mm-hmm. They don't see the difference. They, they don't see it as see one. That, that neighbors in their community are in their homes on drugs. Yes. And driving on the streets on yes. drugs. Yes. If you want to look at the, the police docket, you can see how many people exactly. were admitted for drug-related offenses. Mm-hmm. If you want to go to the hospitals and yeah. see how many people are, you know, yes. those are your neighbors. Those are your friends. Those are your community. Right. And, you know, and so. So, Casey, what I like about how Holly's talking about this, though, is she's having empathy for the people that are trying to block these things oh, in the community. Because you only know what yes. you know until you know. Well, because if I don't right. have empathy for them, then I'm so angry. But I also know as a psychologist that just being told something isn't enough to change a mind. Otherwise, right. my job would just be telling people things, right? <laughs> and and a person has to have open ears, open heart, want to know it, and then know what to do with that information. Like you have to be ready to receive it. So I'm just curious from somebody who who's done the things you've done, what do you think that key is in a small town to help people not just be informed yes. because they can – dismiss that they can use repression and denial and excuses and all that stuff uh so what do you think the key is to help people really absorb the message of recovery you know that has been in my forethought for months and months and what i keep coming back to is what you guys just spoke about about being authentically them and stepping out and sharing their story the fact that casey can do such such an amazing thing for those in recovery and you it, it says so much. I wish everyone that was in recovery could shout it from the rooftops because then we would know recovery is not only possible, but it's a beautiful thing. And until we can do that, people aren't going to see because they don't yeah. know the dark path that you had to lead to get to this beautiful life. Nobody talks about that. Well, and I think familiarity is a big part of what you're talking about. And what I mean by that is, is somebody who I don't relate to could tell me something about their story and it might be interesting to me, but I'm not sure I'd connect with it. You know, maybe a person I have very little, if anything, in common with. But what about people from all different walks of life talking to people from their walk of life? Yes. You know, so maybe people from the small towns being there at the meetings saying, hey, I'm your neighbor and I want to go to this. You know, that's the sad part is I had people there. Yeah. And it was so shameful, the things that the other people were saying, yeah. that they didn't want to stand up and say, you know, they just, they're like, why do I want to inflict that pain on me? I'm, I'm going to get up and walk out because yeah. these people don't understand. And I'm not going to sit here and fight with people that don't want to understand. And changing minds is a, is a really hard business. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's tough to get people to open their hearts, open their minds, see things differently. Uh, but I really appreciate the fact that people like you are willing to go to those meetings and try because I think it slowly is making a difference. Yeah. Well, the conversation you guys just had made me think about the past four years of doing this podcast. We've had so been so blessed with so many people stopping by and sharing their story. But we've had emergency room doctors. Mm-hmm. We've had orthodontists. 
we've had lawyers, we've had nurses, we've had homeless people, we've had people from all walks of life right. come on this podcast and share their story. And the amazing thing is, is at the end, the wonderful things they are doing, what's loving and capable and empathetic people they've become. And, and, and it really is. I mean, it's a testament to what what's out there in the world of addiction. I mean, there's... I mean, it, it really is. I mean, I, I look back and I go, I mean, we had one guy on here who was an emergency room doctor who would up at the University of Utah, mm-hmm. he would go down and get heroin in downtown Ogden, shoot up and go up there and perform surgery. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Remember that? I appreciate that he admitted that. Yeah. Idea, yeah. But Whoa. like, honestly, the fact that somebody would would admit something like that publicly that's the powerful message that we need to get out is that anybody from any walk of life, no matter how educated or respected you are, you can make some terrible decisions when you're in the throes of addiction. And then you can do some beautiful things when you're in recovery and that we just need to be honest with each other. We had a guy who owned a construction company on this podcast who was addicted to opioids. He had left his last pill in his ashtray in his truck. He was running to a construction site with his daughter, got out to talk to some employees, came back, noticed the pill was gone. And she was a child, young child. Like four or five. Yeah. Did the responsible thing and took her straight to the hospital, had her pumped her stomach with charcoal and made sure she was okay. Soon as the doctor told him that she was going to be okay, he said two minutes later he was down in the parking lot calling his dealer because that was his last pill. And now he's been sober for over six years Mm -hmm. and does wonderful things in the world of addiction and recovery. And and I was like, and I remember him telling me the story and I was like, I can't believe you're sharing this. Isn't that crazy how our brains shift though from survival mode? Yeah. He was surviving with pills and then he was surviving as a parent to save his child. Okay. Now it's reverting back to my other survival. Pills again. And so, I mean, there are so many stories that we've heard on this podcast that will just make you drop your jaw, stop and think, oh, my gosh, I can't. What? This is insane. (laughs) Casey, living in a family with a lot of different addicts with a lot of different drugs of choice, I've got some stuff. (laughs) It's just you got to work through it. So have you had any close friends or family members with success stories in recovery like that have gotten through? Yeah. 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 My brother is eight years sober. Oh, that's he great. has an amazing family. He's a single dad of three. He's doing it every single day and he's sharing it with others too, which is, which is key. So you may or may not know this. What's just one of his top things that helped him get into and stay in recovery? Like what's something he's done or still does? Um, top things are definitely not reverting back to old ways which when you knew, when you learn new ways, you don't have to revert as much because the path doesn't seem so hard, right? Well, you've mentioned like traumas popping up in mm-hmm. your family and sort of triggering people to use more. Uh, so one of the things I found like to help people not revert to old ways is once they're in sobriety, then now it's recovery happens when you learn those new ways. So how do I manage my stress? Yeah. Because it rains on everybody some people figure out how to bring umbrellas. And if you don't have an umbrella, then you feel real desperate, right? And so I think that that's a big part of helping a person transition from sobriety to recovery is helping them learn to do things differently, manage the stress of, because you're still going to lose a job, you're still going to have to pay taxes, you're still going to have a fight with your spouse, you know, and uh, it helps by educating and training people beyond just getting them sober. Yeah, uh, number one thing is community. 
who you are having connections with. Because if you're still having connections with the people that you were doing drugs with, that's where your mind's going to go. It's where your heart's going to go, right? Right. Having that community that supports your recovery but also supports your trials, that's the number one thing. You're not going to not have trials. When you have them, though, who are you picking up the phone and calling? And are you being honest with others that, you know what? No, I'm not perfect. And today sucks. So I can't do X, Y, and Z, but it doesn't mean I'm failing. It means I'm actually doing really well because I told you I'm failing. So yeah. so please, I need the help. So yeah. before we find out all the cool stuff that you're doing, Twila, and you've got a lot of stuff coming up that's going to be really a blessing for the community, uh, what advice could you give to people listening to this podcast who have loved ones who are battling addiction? It sounds like Ooh, you, you're you know get me I mean? emotional, Casey. I mean, <laughs> but I think that's what people would like to hear. I mean, you yeah. know, I mean, what can you do? Because I mean, through thirty years of family members battling substance, you've had to learn some things. Yeah, the number one thing is you cannot train somebody, or you cannot make them drink the water. They have to want to drink it for themselves. You have to work on you and the ways that you communicate with those family members. There is hope. There is an amazing road to recovery, but you are not the only answer to that road. There's so much enabling that goes on in families with um, with addiction. And until you get help for the things that you are you are actively doing to contribute to that addiction – Um, those are the things we all get stuck in is how do I show up every single day and not shame that member or not shame, you know, not remind them or not enable. And some people don't understand what enabling even is because they were taught that's how you love. You know, you take someone's burdens if you love them. No, you don't. You teach them how to live with those burdens or you or you connect them to a person who can. Sometimes when we're on the inside, I mean, I have two family members that I cannot have a conversation with. I can't even have them in my life. I haven't spoken with them for a couple years because they're still in that active mindset of addiction. And no matter how much I love them through it, I'm too close. You have to seek others outside of that sphere. You have to seek the health professionals that are the people that can get them through this. It, it doesn't say you're not a good family member. It says you are the best family member to give them to someone else to help them. It's There's so many things, but most of all, I would say there is hope. Just work on you. And I think that's an important point is that so many times we do want to take the burdens and we want to take – all the hurt from the person that is battling addiction to lighten the load for them, but that's not doing them any good. And what we need to do is figure out what we can do to make ourselves better for when they're ready for recovery, when we can help them and be there, but enabling I mean, I, I, still people don't understand what enabling is. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they go, well, <laughs> it, they, it helps enabling to me is, and I'll probably get in trouble for this uh, is, it's the coward way out for me. Enabling is I'm going to do this for you so I feel like I'm helping and I can sleep better at night. You I know, also, that. though, I, I can see that because it's actually a very selfish thing to do because you're trying to get rid of the problem. Right. Yeah. But the other thing is watching my mother. She was grasping on to a way to survive, like a way to help her child survive. Yeah. And and, and I get that part of it too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I do. But to tell somebody to c- 
cut them off is going to be the best thing is such a tough thing to do. Enabling is born out of a lot of desperation and fear and trying to make things better in the moment, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of short, quick fixes for problems. Um, I would look at it as uh, after my interaction with this loved one, are they more independent or less in, or less independent? Are they, you know, are they more dependent on me or less dependent on me? Like, do they have their more ability to manage their life or less ability because I'm doing it for them? If the answer is the latter and you're you, they're more dependent on you. You might need to reconsider whether or not you're That's enabled. Good. It is, and it's actually that person's own problem that they need to be seeking help for. Right. Right. Like, it all comes from from their own issues as well. So So what cool things are you doing in Tooele right now? How are you going to help the recovery community? (laughs) We're doing so many cool things. Casey, we are so excited. Um, So we have two companies. One is called The Beacon House. The Beacon House is um, an inpatient residential treatment facility uh, for men and women and also a sober living community. So my uh, background a little bit is um, I'm a real estate developer. And so I'm trying to find ways to give back to the community. So I'm finding these projects where, you know, we have a 12 plex that we're going to build and that's where they graduate after group living. And group living is where they graduate out of inpatient. So it's not like a quick fix. None of this is a quick fix, but it's all, it has to all communicate together. So Say a family member enters into one of our in, in in treatment, they would graduate into intensive outpatient, and then they would live in a group living environment. There are so many key features to group living environment. There's community. There's accountability. Um, accountability is huge. Yes, but it's it's people within the own ha- your own house building you up and keeping that energy and saying, "No, I'm calling you out on this." Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. and they need that. If you go into inpatient, it's so hard to just go back to your normal environment. It's, you know, we have a, a two out of 10 success rate, and that's a good success rate I was in say, Utah. That seems a little high. <laughs> that is, yes. And that's, and that's with all of the right things. So for us, it's just a way to give back to the resources that we need there. But we're working with a lot of amazing professionals that have been fighting this fight out there for about eight years. Um, Bonneville Family Practice, they do uh, an incredible job at outpatient therapy. Um, they also have MAT treatments. Um, uh, it's medical assisted therapies mm-hmm. that they help as well and mental health. Um, so the Beacon House has inpatient. They have outpatient uh, sober living environments all the way up to independent living. So can you imagine living in an apartment complex where you know everybody is sober because they're all doing the work? Um, to be able to create those type of communities are are huge. Man, that is really cool because what we know in mental health and, and substance abuse, recidivism rates are, are huge. People, you know, circle in and out of these treatment centers because of relapse all well, the time. By her numbers, it would be 80%. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's actually a little higher, I think, overall. But um, that that's discouraging. But you, as places like this help support people through this process beyond just their inpatient treatment, then they, they start to put more weeks and months and even years under their belt and and like you said earlier the the thing the key is community 
And that's what you're building, yes. sounds like. Yeah. Well, I don't know who came up with this, but this guy should get punched in the face. The 30-day <laughs> fix for recovery. <laughs> yeah. Because you talk to most addicts, yeah. and, 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 and or addicts or addicts and loved ones of addicts, they were like, well, 30 days and you're just going to be good. Yeah. No, no. That's no. just scratching the surface. 30 days is just to get you off of the drugs and get you in somewhat of a, a safe place. But then there's it's so much a, work that goes that's on. That's just a step in the right direction. But, yes. but, I mean, but, but you talk to anybody, and even when I was on the front lines trying to get people in, they go, 30 days is all I'm going to give you. And I was like, well, ah. Yeah, that's. <laughs> you know, okay. I mean, we'll take it, but that's so much more than just 30 days. Oh, it is. It's a lifetime, and you have to to start building those relationships that they can lean on for that. Well, and I would imagine you've experienced this in your family where people go in, get some treatment, but then they come right back to not just friends but family members who are also using that. It's the same environment, same stressors, nothing's really changed. Why would we expect – that they could handle it better. It's so true. And the biggest part is this is a family disease. This 100%. is not one yep. person. We think, oh, we're going to send that one person into treatment. What is the other parts of the family doing during that 30 days? During that 30 days when your loved one is in inpatient trying to get their medical survival skills back, what are you doing as a family? Because if they come back to the exact same environment, nothing's going to change. You have to change every single piece of that family for it to be successful. So in the Twila community where you work, um, if there, if a family member has, has a, a loved one going into treatment, what would you recommend they do? So we have gram, a family group sessions that are mandatory for everybody that comes in. Mm-hmm. Um, we advocate for families so much. And if your loved one is not ready, if they are not ready for treatment yet and you still want to make a step in the right direction, please contact us. Because just because your loved one isn't ready, you should you are ready. And there's, like, there's it, because Al-Anon. it's a family disease, yeah, it's but- traumatic for uh, – I can't imagine being a parent watching – your child go through addiction, I would need help. I would need support, but I probably wouldn't know where to go. And that's why there's great mm-hmm. programs like Al-Anon, which is, yes. is a wonderful uh, resource for loved ones of uh, addicts. Mm-hmm. And there's the craft program. We've yep. had representatives come on and talk yep. about that. So, Well, know. I'm excited and I can't wait. And when you're all up and running, we'll have you back on to talk about it because this podcast is all about recovery and everything you're doing screams recovery and I love it. Dr. Matt, last thoughts. About Holly Jones. What? Well, about Holly Jones? I was yeah. going to say, I think this is the Casey Scott punchy in the face episode. So, yeah. right? That's come up a couple times today. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you're on fire. I'm sorry. You're on fire. No, I, I, I being a small town person myself, uh, having having an uncle uh, who, who eventually passed from alcoholism and was part of that small town community, uh, it's near and dear to my heart to try to support people in small towns. I also know that Changing minds anywhere is tough business, but small towns for sure. Uh, I think a lot of the mistakes we make in life are born out of fear and ignorance. And so when people can come in and reduce the fear, make connections, share information to reduce ignorance, eventually, you know, it's a slow grind. But I know people like you are going to make a difference in small towns. And we, we often think of addiction and I think in the past, it's been highlighted in the urban areas and big cities. But the reality is small towns, so they struggle so much, not just with the same addictions, but frankly, without because they don't have the same resources. So Absolutely. thank you for what you're doing. 
And I think uh, addiction and cops have a lot in common where people like to bag on them until they need one. Until they need them. You know what I mean? So you got got cops and you got resource centers and everybody wants to – you know, be like I don't want that around me until, until you, you need, need it. One. Yeah, and then you're then you're going. Well, why isn't there more around here? Yeah. So, well, thank you very much. We appreciate you stopping by, and we look forward to your success and all that you're doing for the recovery community. Thank you so much. No, thank you. And you've been listening to Project Recovery. And in case you forgot, Project Recovery is what Casey Casey punch in the face, Scott. Mm-hmm. It's a KSL podcast. I was going to say punch in the face, but now I won't. <laughs> of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new season three, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts.